Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've been back in the book of 1 Samuel, and the focus of the narrative has been all about how God is going to remove King Saul, the current king of Israel, and replace him with King David. In chapter 16, we saw Samuel anoint David, the shepherd boy, the youngest of Jesse's sons, rather than his older and more impressive-looking brothers. One of the key verses, uh, really, in one time as a whole, as a whole is in uh, chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's the key idea that governs so much of the narrative of this book and explains why Saul was the wrong kind of king and why David will be the right kind of king when he becomes king. It's also a verse uh, that has forever been burned into my own memory because we once sung it on a summer camp that I was serving on as our kind of memory verse to the tune of Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson. It worked rather well. Um, I did think about uh, getting Michael up and asking the choir if they could lead us all in it, but frankly, it wouldn't be the most ridiculous thing they've been asked to do this morning. So... um, (laughs) So we canned it. And of course, last week we looked at one of the most famous episodes about David when he fights Goliath the giant. It's this great public sign that it's not the outward appearance that counts if you want to be king of God's people, but the heart. David didn't look impressive in front of Goliath, but his strength came from his trust that the Lord God would win the battle through him. And you might be thinking at this point in the narrative, well, okay, we've learnt the lesson, we've got it, get the crown off Saul and on to David, and let's see how it all goes. But the surprise is that that doesn't happen until the start of 2 Samuel, the next book of the Bible. David doesn't actually become king until then. And we're only halfway through 1 Samuel at this point. Instead, what we get is about 14 more chapters of what feel like might feel like kind of filler as you get this sort of tug of war between David and Saul. And it might make you think, well, you know, why? Why have we got so many chapters of this? Why not just get on with it? The author of 1 Chronicles, for example, one of the other history books in the Old Testament, all he does is give a couple of selected um, highlights or lowlights, really, of Saul's life, and then he gets on with the narrative about David, the right king. Why didn't the author of 1 Samuel do the same thing? Surely there should have come a point where he gave his first draft to his wife to read, and she could have turned to him and said, darling, there's a lot of this that you could cut out before it goes to the publisher, which is roughly how things happen in the Patterson household. But actually, these are fantastic chapters we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks, because they dig much more deeply into the character of Saul and the character of David during this crisis period for both of them. We discover much more of the ramifications of what it looks like to have the right person in charge or the wrong person in charge when they're put head to head against each other. One glance at the recent news, and we shouldn't need any persuading that we're already fascinated by the lives of our leaders. Well, the historians of the Bible also thought that it's vital to get into the minds of leaders of the past in the Bible story and not just learn the bare facts about what they did. This week we're going to uh, cover chapters 18 to 20. We read the first bit of chapter 18. Um, you'll have to go away and read the rest of it uh, yourself during the week. Um, but I will do my best to try and summarize what we've looked at and also uh, the bits that we haven't had a chance to cover. And for these chapters, it is Saul who is still primarily in the limelight. And again, that might 
interest you. Here's a bit of trivia for you. God is unsurprisingly the most named character in the Old Testament by some margin. David is next. Moses is next. And King Saul, interestingly, is the fourth most named character in the Old Testament. If you're somebody who knows the Old Testament a bit, perhaps that would surprise you. His name is written more times even than Abraham or Jacob or Joshua or Solomon or any of the other prophets or kings. It turns out that we really need to know about the king that went wrong and why he went wrong and what was going on within him internally as he went wrong. We need to know about that almost as much as we do about the right king, David. Well, let's dive back into the narrative then, and I'll do my best to retell what's going on. The first person that we meet in chapter 18 is Jonathan, the son of Saul. Have a look back at verses 1 to 4 with me. If you've closed your Bibles, uh, that is on page 290. Verses 1 to 4. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. The great thing about Jonathan throughout the narrative of 1 Samuel is that he always illustrates what his father, the king, Saul, should be doing in any situation. Jonathan actually has the most to lose out of anybody because he is the heir to the throne. So he has the most incentive to eliminate all competition. But instantly he sees that David is the right person to ally yourself with because of the way that God is working through him. Some people have suggested that there's an erotic relationship going on between David and Jonathan, and that's why Jonathan loves David here. There's no evidence at all that it's that kind of relationship in the text. That's just speculation. Rather, this is a relationship quite clearly of deep personal trust and respect and loyalty. I hope you have friends like that of either gender. If you have a friend like that, if you would spring to defend, for example, if anyone says anything negative about them, Well, that's the sort of relationship between uh, Jonathan and David that we see here. And the first thing that Jonathan does in verse 3 is to make a covenant with David. We don't tend to do that these days, but what it basically means is a commitment to support him, which he symbolizes by giving him uh, his robe and his, his gear and so on. Now, we might be thinking that he's doing all this because he knows that David is the future king. But part of what's really interesting about what's going on here is that Jonathan doesn't necessarily know that yet. Remember, at this point in the story, we the readers know that Samuel has anointed David to be Saul's successor, but that was in a private ceremony with just his family. Nobody else knows yet. That's not public knowledge. As far as Jonathan is aware, he's establishing a deep friendship with a man that God seems to be powerfully at work within. He's just killed the giant with God's help. But one of the questions will be, well, how will Jonathan respond as it starts to become clear that David is actually the man who will inherit the kingdom rather than him? Now, Saul, by contrast, does none of what Jonathan uh, does here. He simply sees David as a commercial asset. Previously, David had been the young lad who can knock out a good tune on the lyre, which is sort of primitive guitar, Uh, when he needs some soothing music. And now David is also the young lad who's just won a battle for him against the Philistines. Very handy to have a guy who can play a guitar solo with his left hand and slay the Philistines with his right. 
And so he quickly changes his job description to part-time musician and part-time army general. That's an interesting one for filling out your tax return at the end of the year, isn't it? But everything suddenly starts to change. And Saul's attitude starts to change when David returns from one particularly successful battle against the Philistines. And Saul hears the crowds chanting about it in verse 6. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Crowds have a way of coming up with songs and chants that get under the skin don't they? I was at a football match a little while ago where the crowd had come up with a chant that was extremely vulgar but quite perceptive about the referee and I imagine that it probably got under the skin and was hard to ignore. Well, for Saul, this is the moment where everything changes and suddenly all that chat that Samuel gave him a couple of chapters ago that the kingdom was going to be taken from him and given to someone else, well, suddenly all that's starting to come back into his mind again. They've only credited me with a thousand, he says, but they've credited David with tens of thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom itself, he wonders anxiously. And so the plot thickens. And I wonder what you think Saul's options are at this point. Clearly he has to do something. And clearly the right thing to do would be to copy Jonathan, his son. Bow out honorably and commit yourself to the one that God appears to be backing. Listen to the word that God gave you and go with it. But now that Saul has reached the top, that isn't quite so straightforward for him. And so in verse 10, we quickly discover which way Saul's heart is leaning when he's in a particularly bad mood. We're told that the next day an evil spirit or a bad spirit came from God forcefully upon Saul. Uh, That might sound a little bit strange, so let me unpack it and remind us of the context. This isn't a demon that God is sending here or anything like that. Back in chapter 10, when Saul was first anointed as king, God gave him his spirit and he prophesied before the Lord. And he was told that God would be supporting him in the decisions that he made from that point onwards. That's what it was supposed to symbolize. But then after everything went in the wrong direction and he disobeyed God, we were told in chapter 16 that God took his spirit away from Saul and instead gave him a bad spirit. We're not told exactly why God did this, but I think it's a fairly clear indication to Saul that he is no longer backing and supporting the decisions that Saul is making. And now in chapter 18, the bad spirit has come upon Saul and he's prophesying once more. Interestingly, it's the same word as when the spirit of God first rushes upon him. Prophecy is one of those words that's a little bit hard to define in the Old Testament. But when somebody prophesies in a positive sense, they are speaking true and insightful things about God. There's a rough definition for you to work with. So probably what Saul is doing here is, is bad prophecy, if you like. He's speaking words against God. He's in a bad mood and he's raging against God as he wanders through the house. And David is there playing some music to soothe him, which would have refreshed him greatly previously. But of course now, having David in his presence, well, David is the source of the problem, isn't he? And so acting on impulse, he picks up his spear and decides that this could all be settled right here and right now. If there's one act that characterizes Saul, this is probably it, as we'll see in the following chapters as well. He's a man who thinks with his feelings and acts on impulse and hang the consequences. 
Unfortunately for Saul, he's also not quite as accurate with his spear as David is agile, and suddenly the consequences of his actions become very clear as the spear stands quivering in the wall and David's heel is disappearing out of the window. He's missed twice. At which point, verse 12, he was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul, just in case the lesson hasn't been made clearly enough already with the evil spirits and everything like that. And again, this would be a great moment to take stock now that this has been made so clear, to repent, to do a U-turn. But Saul quickly decides that the best thing now is to get David as far away as possible while he figures out what he's going to do, to procrastinate, basically. So he changes David's timesheet to 0% lead guitar in the palace band and 100% military service to get him out there with the Philistines in the battles and away from him in the palace while he figures this all out. But the problem with that, of course, is that the more time you give David on the battlefield, the more success he keeps on having because God is with him and the more his reputation grows. In verse 14, we're told, in everything he did great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Now that takes us to the end of the passage that we had read. But let me briefly fill us in on the rest of what's going on in chapters 18 to 20. Far from doing a U-turn, Saul starts scheming at this point, and he realizes that the best way to get rid of David, which he's going to have to do quickly because all the men love it, and he can't really take him away from the battlefield because that's what they want him to do, well, maybe he can engineer it so that he gets killed in battle, which would be fantastic because then there would be no negative repercussions on Saul either. And because Saul essentially views people as commodities, he realizes that his own daughter could be an excellent asset in this. What if he were to invite David to marry his daughter in exchange for a um, very complicated and difficult bride price that might get him killed in battle? Have a look down uh, across, uh, across the page to chapter 18, verse 24, and let's see the offer that Saul makes. The king wants no other price for the bride than a 100 Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was for David to fall by the hands of the Philistines. Can I just say, this is my first sermon that I've been asked to preach in all sorts. And when I looked at the passage, I thought, thanks a bunch, Charlie, for giving me this one. Anyway, that's what the word of the Lord is telling us. Now, possibly Saul intends this to look like a great religious gesture in front of everybody, to have all his enemies circumcised, because circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God gave with his own people. But really, all he's after is that David gets killed. After all, it's hard enough to kill someone in battle. It's even more tricky to try and circumcise them afterwards while the battle is still raging on around you. And it's not the sort of task that you can find some easy cheat solution for either. Because let's say David manages to convince his own army to do the deed to themselves and avoid having the battle at all. That won't work because Israelites were already circumcised. You see, Saul knows what he's doing. He set this whole thing up. So it's surely inevitable that David will get killed. But David says, well, okay, no problem. He gathers the army, and a little while later, he comes back and deposits a large and rather disgusting sack on Saul's desk. Not only has he matched the bride price, he has even doubled it. And you can imagine the flabbergasted Saul saying, 
Well, that's wonderful. I suppose we'd better start planning a wedding then, hadn't we? What a happy, cheerful time. Now, does Saul change his mind at this point? Is this the moment when he changes his mind and wakes up and smells the coffee? Nope. At the start of chapter 19, Saul starts to plot a more organized assassination attempt for David, an undercover one this time. But Jonathan intervenes and brings him to his senses. Jonathan, remember, has every reason to bail on the covenant he made with David, now that it's becoming clearer that David might become king. But he points out that shedding innocent blood would be a very bad idea, especially when David has done so much to help Saul himself. And finally, Saul listens to Jonathan and swears an oath that he will stop pursuing David. Chapter 19, verse 6. Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. So there we go. Has everything been put right now at this point? Well, I wonder if you can remember the last time you made an oath that you would stop doing something that you knew that God didn't want, only to go back on it a few days later. Well, we don't know exactly how long it took for Saul, but in the narrative, it's only three verses later, and he's throwing a spear at David once again. And so we start the second cycle of Saul trying to kill David with a strong sense of deja vu. This next cycle involves David escaping from Saul with the help of Michal, uh, his wife and Saul's daughter. If you remember, now both Saul's son and his daughter seem to be on David's side. David flees. He goes to stay with the prophet Samuel. Saul gets wind of this and sends some hitmen to go and take out David. But they keep coming back prophesying having met the prophets. It's this comedic scene where it doesn't matter who Saul sends, they end up prophesying rather than getting the sniper rifle out. And so Saul goes up himself, and he ends up prophesying as well when he meets Samuel and the prophets. Go back and have a read of it later. It's hilarious, but also very sobering. As if this passage wasn't graphic enough already, we're told that Saul strips off all his clothes and lies naked before Samuel and prophesies all night and all day. Now, I don't think we need to imagine that he's in some kind of weird trance there or anything like that. I think what we're supposed to see is repentance. Stripping yourself is a great act of humility. He's quite literally laying himself bare before the Lord for 24 hours. And the author Riley reminds us of the proverb again in verse 24 that came up earlier in the book. Is Saul also among the prophets? Those of you with a good memory will remember that that came up in chapter 10 when Saul was first, first prophesied when he was made king, although the circumstances are now, of course, very different. And so here we are again, Saul apparently being brought to his senses, this time by Samuel rather than Jonathan. This time, perhaps we're thinking Saul has been changed for the good at last. Certainly that's what would happen in the movies, isn't it? Finally, he's brought low. Finally, he's truly repented. Surely a guy who spent 24 hours stretched out, embarrassing on the floor before Samuel and before God is at last a changed man and will do the right thing. Well, as chapter 20 begins, David is certainly skeptical. And most of chapter 20 involves a long conversation between him and Jonathan to try and determine whether Saul has really changed his mind properly or not. Go and have a read of it later. But where it all ends up is with Saul hurling his spear once more. This time, not at David, but at his own son, Jonathan, for siding with David. Flick over the page and have a look at chapter 20, verse 30 with me. 
Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Bear in mind that's his own wife he's talking about there. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. This is what he says to Jonathan. And of course the irony of all of this is that Jonathan is quite willing to accept it. He made a covenant with David at the start of chapter 18, if you remember, where we started, when he saw that God was with him. He's been willing to stick with that decision and even reinforce it several times if you read through the bits that we skipped over. Because Jonathan can see that the most important thing is that you side yourself with the one that God has appointed. So that's a summary of what's going on in chapters 18 to 20. And what we're seeing about Saul here really is the outworking of a choice that he has. He's been told that the kingdom will be given to another. The question is, will he prioritize what God has said? Will he take this seriously and respond accordingly? Or will he put up a fight? And what we're seeing is the sad, drawn-out narrative of a man who had such potential at first, spiraling downwards and downwards, being given opportunity after opportunity to do the right thing. But when push comes to shove, caring more about his own position every time, all the while with huge ramifications for all of those around him, of course. And this is only the beginning of Saul's great decline, as we'll see. It's a tragic lesson of how badly wrong things can go when the king of God's people can't bring himself to make God's priorities and God's decisions his own number one priority. And I wonder what you make of Saul as we've been reading through this. On one level, he's a very relatable character, isn't he? There's something very human about Saul. He illustrates how normal human sin can begin to take over any one of us. The particular examples might seem strange to us. You know, I'm not trying to hunt down and murder someone who I'm concerned is going to take over my kingdom. I doubt that any of you are either. You know, if you, if you are a visiting monarch from another country and you think this might apply to you directly, do come and have a chat at the Connect Corner um, at the end. But most of us, that's not really what we're facing But when it boils down to it, Saul is an ordinary man who's become paranoid and obsessed that someone else is getting the limelight that he thinks he ought to have. That sounds a little bit more familiar. Or another example, I've never thrown a spear at someone. I I did once accidentally break a window by throwing a particularly inaccurate dart at a dartboard, hit the window, broke it at my in-laws on the first visit there. But I've never thrown a spear at anyone, bit weird, But making a big gesture of repentance, swearing an oath that I won't keep doing something, only to go back on it very shortly afterwards, that sounds quite familiar as well. There's something very normal about Saul. He's not a terrible person, actually. He began as a very honorable man, in fact, if you go back and read chapter 11. This is just the sort of thing that happens when normal people are put in power. And that's what's so tragic about Saul's decline. But this passage isn't saying that every leader is doomed to failure either. For example, Jonathan, his son, appears to be quite capable of doing the right thing. Rather, Saul illustrates how badly wrong things can go when the wrong kind of person with the wrong kind of internal qualities is put in charge. Saul's name literally means asked for. If you remember, he was the man that the people asked for. What they saw was a big, impressive man who would fight their battles for them. 
But the whole point of the narrative of 1 Samuel has been to show us that that was a terrible mistake. They should have waited for God to show them the right kind of leader. And now we're seeing the full ramifications of all of that. It's possible that back in chapter 15, when Saul disobeyed God, and Samuel told him that God was going to take the kingdom away from him as a result, all that sounded quite harsh. I mean, you know, he, yes, he had made a mistake, but he'd sort of mostly done the right thing. It's a high-pressure job, you know, cut him a little bit of slack. But what we're seeing is that same character trait playing out to its full in these chapters. The disobedience and lack of trust in God that he showed initially was just the symptom of a much deeper underlying problem. Yes, Saul may have been impressive looking. He may have looked great on the outside. But that's not what's really needed in the leader of God's people. It's funny, isn't it, that we have to be going through 1 Samuel just at the point when there is a leadership crisis happening in our own country. We didn't plan that. We didn't know that when we planned the sermon series. But the events of the last few weeks and months certainly illustrate to us how badly wrong things can go when someone with the wrong kind of character traits ends up in leadership, no matter how good a leader they are in other ways. And of course, this is particularly essential in the unfolding narrative of the Bible as a whole. God's game plan from the beginning has been to fill the earth with the knowledge of him, as the prophet Isaiah puts it. And he wants to do that through his human agents. How essential it is, therefore, that those in positions of power have the right kind of internal qualities, the kind of internal qualities that align with what he thinks is right. And to finish it with, I just want to take a minute, therefore, to apply everything that we've been seeing about Saul to us here at All Souls Church. A number of weeks ago when Charlie preached on chapter 13, when Saul was last in the limelight, we thought about some of the implications for our church leaders, particularly the bishops within the Church of England. And I want to put that application back on the table again and think more directly to us ourselves here and our leaders here. I wonder how often are you concerned that your leaders here at All Souls might end up like Saul? And if we're not concerned, well, why is that? If the answer is because your leaders seem confident or articulate or impressive or reassuring, the sorts of people who give a strong lead and seem to know what they're doing, who can communicate the Bible well, etc., etc., well, those were the sorts of things that Saul was. He was the kind of leader that looked reassuring in the eyes of the people, capable of fighting the battles that they all thought mattered. But look where it's all going with Saul. There's one qualification that's really, really important for any of us in any position of leadership, which is that our top priority is that we care about the things that God cares about. It matters far less whether our leaders are winsome or intelligent or highly skilled at explaining the Bible, or even if all our leaders sign up to serve at the All Souls Serving Christmas, you know, even if we're all scrubbing the toilets at the end of the final carol service, even that isn't a guarantee. What really matters is that we care about what God cares about deeply on the inside and are willing to stick with it like Jonathan was. Otherwise, we may very easily end up going the way of Saul when our position is really threatened. And you don't have to look very far within our own constituency, sadly, to see examples of how this has gone wrong recently. So I wonder, if you want a takeaway thing to do from the talk this week, would you consider praying for us all? 
Would you take some time to pray for your leaders here at All Souls Church, if you're a regular member of the church, that we would care about what God cares about above all, and that we might be guarded from going the way of Saul. Well, next week, David will step into the limelight, and we'll see this lesson all over again, but from the other side this time. For now, why don't I pray? And then we can finish. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that you are and always will be the great leader of your people, that you always get everything right, and that you lead with perfect wisdom, and how we see this particularly clearly in our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you instruct us to know what to look for and what not to look for in those who become leaders. We pray, Father, that you would protect us as a church to learn the lesson of Saul, Help us to pick people who care about what you care about when we appoint people to positions of leadership. And we pray this so that ultimately your name may be glorified in all of the earth, Heavenly Father. Amen.